Wendy. That was beautiful. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're in the Fixer Upper series where we're talking about how God, just like a, any Fixer Upper, takes something that is broken and something that is in, in a state of disrepair and he fixes it up. And God is in the business of doing that with people. Amen? And so this week we're going to actually look at the, the, the life of David. And, and some of you, as, as you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 11, you might be... You might be thinking, why David? I mean, David, wasn't he just a great person already? I mean, this was a guy who, even as a kid, served the Lord and had great trust and did some, some incredible things. How could David be a fixer-upper? I mean, wasn't he a man after God's own heart? And you remember he, he took out Goliath the giant? And he, uh, uh, just the way he, he handled his, his uh, disagreement, I guess if you want to call it disagreement, with Saul, where Saul was trying to kill him, and yet he showed respect to Saul, and then, and then when he eventually became king, he's getting victory after victory after victory. How can he be a fixer-upper? But if we, look at, if we look at 2 Samuel 11, we find that later on in his life, there was a point where he needed a renovation as well, another renovation as well. So even beautiful houses can get to a point in their life where they need to, to be re- renovated again, right? And I think that actually that's a reminder for us too, no matter what age you are, um, our, our house, so to speak, can fall into a state of disrepair and could need, need to be renovated as well. And, uh, and so maybe you need to be renovated again. And so it's something that we need to think through. And you can't coast through your life with past successes. And I think that's what we see here in David. In fact, if we look at the context, in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 8, 9, and 10, what we find is a list of David's conquests. Three chapters of listing where David would go out against all the enemies of God, all of these, these nations that had been fighting against Israel and, and looting and, and robbing and, and just, just destroying the cities of Israel. He now has success, and he goes against these cities. For three chapters, we see success after success after success, and it's all done at the hands of David. But all of that changes in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So let's look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. We read this. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. You know, if you actually compare this verse to everything you read in the previous three chapters, it seems to fall right in place when it comes to they're attacking another city, they're besieging another city, and they're taking it over. The one difference that you find here is that David doesn't go with them, right? In the spring, in the, t- in, in the, in the springtime of the year, at the, at the time when kings go out to the battle, David sent Joab, and he, he sent his servants with him. He sent all of Israel while he stayed in Jerusalem. When he was supposed to be at, at war, he decided to stay and did nothing. When we think of any typical fixer-upper, you have a before, you have the, the transformation, and then you have the after. We're, we're going to look at the before of David. With the first character trait that we see of him at this point in his life, this wasn't true during his whole life, but it was true at this point in his life, is that he had become lazy. Now let me explain what, what I mean by that. If we look at the time references in that verse... Um, it, it talks about the timing quite a bit. It says, in, uh, in the spring, right? In, in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle. In fact, the grammatical structure there 
uh, could be translated at the time when kings are supposed to go out to battle. In fact, some of the translations that, that would be represented in this room probably have that as the translation. At the time when kings are supposed to go out to war. See what happens? Spring comes right after winter. I know that, that's not an easy question for people in Michigan because you never know when spring's going to come. You never know when winter's going to come. But in most places, spring comes right after winter. And so in the winter, they were unable to fight. And so all the battles, all the wars that are going on would take a pause, right? And so the spring would come. It's time to finish those battles. And so the spring comes. David's supposed to go off the battle. He's got a job to do. Um, God had asked him to, uh, to wipe out the Ammonites, for example. He wasn't done with that job. But he had had success after success after success. And he comes to this point where he just thinks, well, you know what? I'm just going to, to stay back, and I'm going to send people to go do the job for me. But it's interesting, I find, too, that in narrative texts of, of Scripture, they usually just tell you what happens. They don't always tell you what should have happened. They just tell you what happens. It's, they just give, uh, give the statement of what happens without any commentary, and so you need to look at the context to find out what was good or bad. They just give the facts. But here the narrator slips out of that, and actually gives his opinion and, and, and makes it very obvious that this is when David was supposed to go out to war. Now, this is a divinely inspired commentary that's thrown into, the, into there because we know that it comes from God. So when we, we look at that, we realize that David was, had a job to do and he wasn't doing it. He wasn't, supposed to, he wasn't supposed to stay. Instead, he delegated it to others. Now, delegated it to whom? It says that David sent Joab, that was the commander of his armies, and his servants, being, meaning the servants of Joab. That's a group that was called, at the, in, in those days it was a group called the 30. And these were like the best of the best, right? These were, they were the, the top-notch fighters. And uh, in fact, we read stories about them later on in 2 Samuel 23 and the conquests of the, of the 30. And it's an amazing thing to, to read. And so these were the faithful, the closest, the people who would lay down their lives for David. And then he says, and all of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean every human being, but uh, talking about the army. So all of the men that were involved in the army, and that's uh, the majority of the people in the, in the palace for sure. He sent them all to go take care of business while he decided to stay in Jerusalem. And so that's, that's who he sent. Now, you might be thinking... I don't know if that means he's lazy. Maybe he just needed a, a break. Well, keep in mind, he just had the winter, the entire winter break. And uh, so he sent everyone. He sent Joab, sent the 30, every male from the city. And he had developed that attitude of, well, I've already done my share. I mean, I have a whole history here. And look at all I've done. I've, I've accomplished quite a bit. So I'm just going to kind of coast through the rest of this and let other people do the job for a while. You know, I call this the retirement attitude, right? Because what's retirement? The, the idea of retirement and typically in our culture, the idea of retirement is I've done enough work, so now I'm going to relax. I'm going to quit doing the work. I'm going to let other people do it. Did you know that the retirement concept is not found anywhere in scripture? That's right. Now, I, I don't want to step on toes too hard because I'm not saying that you should never retire. But I think we need to twist and, and, and tweak, I should say, the, the idea that we have of what retirement is actually all about. Because the, the concept that, that um, we just retire so that we no longer have to do anything and that we coast based on past successes, I don't see that in Scripture, do you? 
In fact, that brings up a point that I'd like to, to bring out is that retirement does not mean an unproductive phase of life. It's not what it means. Instead, I would say that what it, what it means is it simply means that your work is not determined by your need, but, but, but by what you hope to accomplish. Or even better yet, what God hopes to accomplish through you. Isn't that true? But my dad used to say, retirement means I work for free. That was his definition. And in his retirement, he went to a church. There was a church of 2,000. They had gone through some struggles. And it had come down to about 400 people or so. And they, even those 400 people were ready to split. Neither one of the sides of this split would be able to afford the building that they had at this point. And they didn't know what to do. And my dad, in his retirement, went and helped that church get back on his feet. And he went to another church and helped a, another church going through a similar situation out in Iowa get back on their feet. He helped my brother Tom, who was called to become a missionary to Romania, and he, he, had, he had planted a church, and he was raising up a pastor within the church, so my dad came, and, and came alongside that pastor and helped raise up that pastor so that he could take the church earlier and be ready for it so that my brother could go on to, to Romania. And, and he did that without asking for pay. Isn't that kind of a nice thing? And when you think of churches, one of the most untapped resources in Christianity is our retired folks. And, and you still have... I, 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 it comes to my mind a, a, a situation. I remember my dad all through, all through my childhood. He had a, a friend at the church who he just begged him to use his talents for the Lord because he was such a talented man. And, and the man would say, oh, no, I'm, my goal is to retire at 50. I want to retire at 50. That was my goal. He said, after 50, I'll serve the Lord. I'll, I'll serve him with the rest of my life. And, and I just remember him saying that. I'd, I'd hear him say that on occasion. And so he would work so many hours. Uh, and, uh, and he couldn't dedicate time to the church. And, and I remember when he retired, instead of taking on ministries, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to Florida. I'm exhausted after a lifetime of working double shifts all the time. So he went and he went to Florida. And, and, uh, and within six months, he found out that he, would, he had a, a type of cancer that was going to take his life in less than a year. What a waste of a life. What a waste of a life. And, and, uh, and so this retirement attitude uh, of being that it's an unproductive phase of life, don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. I think it should be more like what Paul said. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. And you finish the course strong. And if you can stand up at the end of the course, then you haven't run like you should, right? Uh, there was a group of us, uh, a group of eight from this church. We ran a, a four-mile obstacle course yesterday with uh, 75 obstacles. And, and, and we, at the end of that, were exhausted. Minus Tom. Right? Where, where's Tom? Uh, Tom Piquet. He, there's nothing exhausts that guy. But for the rest of us, we were exhausted. And, uh, why, and, and why? Because we ran the course from the start to the finish. As the, one of the guys that I was running with said, said, my goal was to never walk. Never walk. What if we had adopted that attitude in our Christian lives? Say, all right, Lord, as long as you have given me breath, you're going to give me a job to do, and I'm going to do it. Amen? Amen? That's something that we see here. David was lacking in that, uh, that concept. I do think it's important to have a little caveat here. This concept that I'm, just, that I'm talking about should be tempered but with a proper view of Sabbath. The Bible does talk about Sabbath, and we need to rest. And there's a time when we need to rest, recharge our batteries, and that's, that's an important thing. And, and we should rest. At the same time, that there's a difference between that and an unproductive phase of life. And stopping what you're doing. And No, there's, there's rest. He had just had 
a three-month rest, and then he decided he was done. So David was not taking a Sabbath. He had become lazy. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 2. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. A couple things to highlight there. What was David doing? And this is what the narrator highlights here. What was David doing at this moment? He, he arose from his bed. So you get this idea that he's in bed, right? Now, how many of you went to bed at some point in the last 24 hours? Okay. So there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But when did he get out of bed? Does it happen one evening? So the, the, the author is actually painting this picture. So we, we get this picture of David where he's been laying around in bed. It's evening time and he's getting out of bed. Now, now unless you're working a weird shift, that's not the norm, right? You get this image that, that David, he's left everyone else to do the job. He stays in Jerusalem and, and then he's laying around in bed. And then what does he do? He gets up and he walks around on the roof. You know, that's his job right now, just walk, walking around, looking around, seeing, looking at his, his palace and so on. And, and, uh, and it's, it's not going well. My grandpa Jack used to, uh, when I, he, he was down in Kentucky, when we were kids, whenever we'd stay there, if we slept in too late, which for him was like 7 in the morning or something, uh, um, if we slept in too late because we had nothing going on, um, he would say, he'd say, oh, I, I, where's your mattress? be like, what? What are you talking about? So, well, I, I thought that mattress was attached to your back, and I see you walking around, I don't see the mattress, and you'd call us mattress backs, you know, and mattress back mode. I think that's what David was in, right, the mattress back mode, um, although it wasn't seven in the morning, it was evening when he got out of bed, and so that's the situation that we see here, and that's when we see the temptation appear, right? I don't think the timing of the temptation was an accident. I don't think that's coincidence. And the temptation appears right at that moment. Satan always throws out the strongest temptations when we're at our weakest points. Amen? We see that here's the situation. David was not serving the Lord, nor serving his kingdom the way he was supposed to. Practically every male in the palace is gone, making him the only male left. And he gets out of bed in the evening, and there he sees a beautiful woman naked. There's his temptation at his weakest point in his, in, in his spiritual life that we can find. So we get it. David stopped doing what, what he was called to do. And this is what happens. And this is a perfect combination for a temptation. And that brings me to a point that I'd like to, to highlight. That when we cease to do what God has called us to do, our temptations gain power. When we cease to do what God has called us to do, our temptations gain power. See, when you're serving God and he's given you victories and things are going well and then you see a temptation, then you see it for what it is. You see, oh, this is a distraction for me. This is something that's meant to pull me away, right? See, if you're floating down a river in a canoe and, and you see something along the side, maybe a, uh, some blueberry bushes or something, uh, then you're likely to stop and pick some blueberries. Why? Because you're just floating, but what you won't see is a group of people on a, on a river competing, say, in the Olympics. And their, their goal is to, is to row down the river as fast as they can. You're never going to see them say, wait, let's make a quick stop. I see blueberries over there. Why? 
because they have a goal and they have a focus and they're doing what they're called to do. There's a difference between floating and propelling yourself in the direction that God's called you to go. And, and so those, in those moments, those, those temptations are, are much, more, much more attractive to you when you're not doing what you're called to do. In fact, I would say if you don't want to roll down the hill, don't put your car in neutral. Right? The moment you put your car in neutral, you're, you're subject to rolling in whatever direction that the hill is. Right? So if you keep your car in drive and you keep yourself moving, you're less likely to start rolling downhill. But how did David respond? Let's take a look at this in verse, verses 3 through 5. We read this. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. And he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Boy, what a mess, right? What a mess here. When we look at this before picture of David, it is not, it's not a pretty picture, is it? Of where he had come in his life. This is the same David that killed Goliath. And this is where he's come to in his life. We talked about how he was lazy. I would add that he was covetous. He was covetous. The idea of of coveting means that that God has given you something, but you're not content with what he's given you. And you have coveting. You are desiring something that God has given to someone else. And David became covetous. And he wanted what Uriah, had, what Uriah had and what God had intended for Uriah. And, and yet he had, a, he had his own. He had, he had his own, but yet he was concerned and interested in the other. It reminds me of what Proverbs 5.15 says, where it said, Drink water from your own cistern and r- running water from your own well. In the context here, he's talking about how to avoid adultery. And in, the, in, in Proverbs 5, and the idea is, if just enjoy what God has given you instead of focusing on what God has given to other people. Amen? Imagine what our, what our country would be like if everyone did that. What a beautiful thing it would be. I think, too, that you could really add the word disloyal to the list of David's faults at this point. Remember when we talked about the 30, or the, the 30 great men and, and the conquests of the, the 30? And over the period of David's life, there were only 37 who ever actually made it to this group of the 30. And they'd have 30 at a time. And, uh, and these guys were the toughest of the tough. I mean, sometimes fighting hundreds of people single-handedly and winning. Uh, they, it was an amazing thing, <clears throat> these 30. And they would lay down their life for David in an instant. But in 2 Samuel 23, we have a list of, of these men, as well as, well as some of their conquests. And you know what we find in this group of this, the 30, that David's mighty men of valor, they're called? You know what we find? We find in that list, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel. A few verses later, we find Uriah, the Hittite. These men were the, the closest men to David. These men would die for David. And Eliam, it's his daughter. So you get the image that, that, that Uriah joined. He was probably one of the younger men to join into the, because uh, he was the last one mentioned. So he's one of the, the, the younger guys brought into this group called the 30, falls in love with the, the daughter of another man of the 30, and marries her. 
which would explain, by the way, why she was so close to the palace of David, because these, that's where the families of the closest people to him lived. And so David looks, he sees her, and he wants her. And she belongs to, to Uriah, one of the 30. The daughter of Eliam, another one of the 30. Is that disloyalty or what? This is not a pretty picture of David at this point in his life. Well, once David found out that Bathsheba was pregnant, he knew that he was in trouble. Uh, he knew what people would think of him, and he hated the thought of how people would see him. And so a proper response would have been to repent, and, and it's, but instead he does exactly what Adam and Eve did. He does exactly what we tend to do. He decided to hide his sin from people. And, uh, and so that really brings us to the third uh, the third character trait that we see of him in the before picture, that he hid his sin. And I, w I wish we had time to read the whole story, but, but what we find, if you, if you uh, even read through uh, verses 6 through 11, we find that he tried to hide his sin from Uriah. His thought was, I'm going to hide my sin from Uriah, and he does that by inviting Uriah home from the battle. Uriah comes home because he obeys his commander. He, he comes home. And he spends a little bit of time at home. And David's thought is, he's going to spend time with his wife. Um, then when he goes back to war and he finds out that his wife is pregnant, he's going to think, oh, it must have happened during that trip. Make sense? Here's the problem. Uriah was more faithful than David. And Uriah said, as long as my brothers are fighting in the battles, there's no way I'm going to enjoy and be home and enjoy my wife. I, my heart is with my brothers who are fighting and dying for the cause. So I'm not willing to do it. In fact, what we find in, in verses 12 and 13, David tries it again, and this time he says, I'm going to try and get him drunk. Doesn't work. Once again, Uriah is faithful. He said, there's no way. David tried everything. Then you know what David does? He figures, if I can't hide the sin from Uriah, I can hide it from everybody else by taking Uriah out of the equation. This is what we read in uh, so this way he wants to hide it from all of Israel. He wants to hide, the, hide his sin from all of Israel. And he does it this way. Look at verse 14. It says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. So Uriah is carrying this message. And he's faithful enough to not even read the message. He does what his master commands. Verse 15. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him. That he, may, that he may be struck down and die. Whoa. And he thought, if I can't hide my sin from Uriah, at least I can hide it from the public. I can hide it from everyone else. That brings us to the fourth, the fourth description. Normally I have about three. There's four. He undervalued life. He came to the point in his life where he thought, for my convenience... It's better that this person die so that I don't have to deal with the reputation, so I don't have to deal with people actually seeing me for who I am. He devalued life. By the way, I see that in our culture all of the time right now. If a baby is not wanted, then they have no value. If it's an inconvenience to you, then the baby is not wanted. That's, that's not right. That is not right. And we see that David undervalued life. And, he, and the sad thing is, he followed through with this plan, and Uriah was killed. If you read on, you find that Bathsheba mourned her husband, 
and then she married David, and she gave birth to a son. And if the story ended there, you'd say, no, that can't be right. I mean, the bad guy can't, he can't get away with this, right? But there's a divine transformation that takes place in David's life. And this divine transformation actually comes via two things. It comes through a confrontation, and then it comes through some consequences. By the way, God is great at both of those. But I'll tell you what, if you can learn through confrontation, that is so much better than learning through consequences. Right? If you can learn, whatever you can learn through confrontation, and that's why I say, when you see your brother in sin, confront your brother in sin. If you love your brother, confront him in his sin. Amen? When you see me in sin, I invite every single one of you, you are more than welcome to confront me in sin, because I need it. Amen? I was hoping to hear someone say, Amen. Yeah, because maybe they know me, right? I'll tell you, we need both of these. But let's look at the confrontation that takes place. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse, verses 1 through 4. This is what we read. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. He was a prophet. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate uh, of his own food and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Wow. Isn't that a strong analogy? I mean, David at this point has no idea that he's even talking in parable. He thinks he's talking about a literal man, and, and he has, he has all, of, all these lambs because he's a rich man, and then you have another man who, who raises up a, a, a lamb as a pet in its home, and the children love him, it, it, it sleeps with them at night, it eats their own food. How many of you, by the way, feed your, your animals people food? Anyone else? Sometimes we do, our dog, if our dog can handle it. But you do that because you love it. And the, and, the, and the dog or the cat or whatever, it becomes part of the family. That's how this ewe lamb was for this guy in the story. And, and then he says, but the, the rich man stole that ewe from him to feed someone else. And David gets furious. He gets completely furious. You, you, know, what, you know what Nathan's doing right now? He's giving David a new perspective on sin. He's giving him a new perspective on sin because when we take our own perspective on sin, we're very likely to be forgiving and we can justify anything that we do. Oh yeah, but I, was, it was, I got caught up in the moment or this or that. We, just, we can find ways to justify sin. David is taking us out of our own perspective and saying, let's look at the perspective of sin from God's view. And so he actually takes this neutral, above the whole thing view, and he uses a parable to, to teach this to David, and he, and he shows David the, the, the gravity of this type of sin. He says, this is what took place, and look how David responds in verse 5. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this will surely die. That's pretty, that's pretty strong, isn't it? He will surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the land because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David said, I have a verdict for you. It's guilty. I have a sentence for you. It's death. But before he dies, you have to at least have him repay fourfold for what, for what he did. That's pretty strong, right? 
See, when David steps out of his own, his own selfish view of sin and, and comes above it and, and can see it below him, then all of a sudden he has this objective view of sin. He knows the truth. He knows what's right and wrong. And he's able to say that this is guilty and, and give a sentence as well. And then we have the crucial point of the passage, verse, verse 7. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Wow. You know who you just condemned to death? It's you. It's you. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. You can't blame the Ammonites for this, David. Because that's what he even told Joab. He said, don't worry about it, Joab, because Joab was distressed. He said, one sword kills one man like another. And Joab knew the difference. You killed the man. You killed Uriah with the sword of the Ammonites. You're the one that's guilty for this. What a strong confrontation. By the way, that took guts for Nathan to talk to the king that way. And he did. You know, God uses confrontation as a method for life change. And, and I think this was, uh, this was one of that, those moments for David. When all of a sudden he saw his sin from God's perspective. So I'll tell you what, we can excuse our sins, we can justify our sins. And the moment we see, that's what real repentance is. We start to see our own sin as God sees it. And all of a sudden... It's ugly. And we're ashamed. And we can't believe we did that. Have you ever been there? If you haven't, you're in trouble. Because that's how we should all be when we look at our sins. We see that. Well, God not only used consequences or, or, or uh, confrontation, he also used consequences. Look at uh, verses 10 through 12. It says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to, to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did, did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son David wanted to conceal his sin, and God says, nope, I'm making it public. I'm going to make this as public as can be, and I'm going to raise up someone from your own house is going to be the one to kill you. Someone from your own house is going to, going to rise up from, with the sword and, and is going to be the one to, to, to kill you. And David was so worried about, about what other people would think, he forgot what God would think about his sin. In fact, that's the last verse of chapter 11 says, the thing that David did was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. So he, he managed to hide it from Uriah by killing him. He managed to hide it from all of Israel by killing Uriah. But the thing that he did was displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. He thought he could conceal it, but he couldn't. And that brings us to a point that concealing our sin is never an effective way of dealing with sin. Concealing it is never. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They tried to hide it. Or they made coverings for themselves, right? They, they tried to avoid the questions of God. That's the nature of, 
of humans and the way we deal with sin. We try to conceal sin, and concealing sin is kind of like throwing dirt over seeds. What happens with time? They show up again, but with roots. Harder to deal with, and, and that's what we fight. In fact, Numbers 32, 23 reminds us to, that, that we could be sure that our sins will find us out. Our sins will find us out. Eventually, it's going to come to light. So the sooner we deal with it, the better. And that's why James 5.16 tells us to confess our sins one to another. He's saying, in the congregation, find people that you can talk to so you can confess your sins because the best way to deal with sins is, for, is, is, is not to hide it, but to shed, to shed light on it. So, boy, I'm struggling with this. Boy, I'm struggling with, with, uh, with lust. I'm struggling with, with self-control. I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling, whatever it might be. And you, and you confess these with each other, and then you can help each other grow in those areas. Right? And instead, he concealed it, and that was never good. Now, the question is, how did, how did David respond? Look at verse 13. We read, so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. When we, when we look at this after picture of David, and we see after this confrontation, and after God had laid some of these consequences, we'll talk a little bit more about consequences in a moment, but we, we see something very different. Where he once hid his sin, now David confessed his sin. And that was the first step in the right direction. Where David came to that point where he said, I have sinned. In fact, I'll give you a little homework assignment. This week, sometime, read Psalm 51. Because Psalm 51 was written right at this moment. After David had confessed his sin, he wrote Psalm 51. It's a beautiful poem of the depth of the sorrow that David had because of his sin. I'll tell you what, if you want to know what repentance looks like, that's it. That's it. Read Psalm 51. So he confessed his sin. And God reduced his sentence. He told him, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill you now. I'm, I'm not going to raise someone that's going to take your life from your own family. And, uh, but he did not eliminate the consequences. Look, look at verse 14. He went on to say, However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. That child whom you love is going to die. Well, if you're a parent, that's the worst thing you can hear, isn't it? child is, is not going to survive. What a, what, a, what a difficult thing. You know, that brings it to a point, by the way, that I think is important to, to notice here, and that is that even forgiven sins may carry consequences. Notice God said, I've forgiven you. David said, I am, I, I'm sorry. There's still consequences for sin. And you can be right with God, and the sin is dealt with, but there are consequences for sin that, that can take place. You can, have a, you can have a lifestyle. I, I've known of people who had a lifestyle of, of smoking and, and they get right with the Lord and God forgives them for all of that. And then, then you know what? They still develop lung cancer. They still have to have surgeries and they still have, have to, to deal with it. It's a consequence for sin. sin. Sin always carries a negative consequence, doesn't it? And, and here's one of those occasions where God says there's still going to be a consequence. And... and uh, we see that God in his sovereignty, this is a, one of those difficult passages in scripture where God in his sovereignty, understanding everything about history, understanding everything about all potential futures, everything, in his omniscient mind, he knew that somehow it was wiser for that baby to die early. It would be better for David. 
It would be better for Israel. It would be better for you and me for all the things that we're going to learn through this. It would be better for that baby to be taken to heaven early than it would be for that baby to live out its full life. What a difficult thing to, to take. And that, that sent David into an emotional tailspin. But if you read uh, uh, the verses that follow what you find in verses 15 through 21, that, that uh, while the baby was alive, David was fasting, he was praying, he couldn't eat, he, he wouldn't get out of bed, he, uh, he was just in, in such a bad shape that his servants feared that if the baby didn't survive, he might take his own life. And uh, that, that's, that was their, their fear. And then when the baby did pass away, look, look how he responded, verse 22 and 23. It says, and he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So at this point, David comes to this full realization that the only comfort on this issue was not going to be found on this side of heaven. The only comfort that he had for this issue was that one day he would see that child again on the other side of death. He would see that child once again in heaven. He would never see that child again on earth. There was nothing that he could do. And he was, he had learned something very valuable through this lesson. And in fact, learning this lesson saved the lives of many people if you read the rest of the story of David's life. What was God teaching him? God was teaching him something important. He was teaching him the value of human life. And that, that life is something that should be left up to God. That is up, it's up to God. It's not our job to choose the life or death of a person. It's, it's something that belongs completely to God. And David violated that when he killed Uriah, who was, by the way, the son of somebody. He was the son-in-law of Eliam. He was the husband of Bathsheba. He was, a, he was a human being, in fact, a good human being. And David took his life, and God had taught him. You know how you feel towards that baby that you lost? You caused that. You're the cause of that. And David all of a sudden learns to value life in a way that he never had done before. I wish I had time to even walk through some of the examples in the rest of his life where all of a sudden he's, he's even valuing the lives of, of enemies, of potential enemies. It's amazing to see the change that, this took, that took place in his life. Let's continue to read verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah and the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. Um, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. So I find this very interesting because Joab was actually still concerned more for David's reputation than he was for his own. He goes out and the Lord's using him. He's getting victory after victory. He takes the city and he sends messages to David saying, David, if you don't get out here and do your job, I'm going to get the credit for this. I'm not trying to take the credit. I'm telling you, you better get out here and do your job or I'm, they're going to name this city after me. And, and, and so that's... Um, you know, that's what we, what we find taking place here. And he says, this, this is what's going to take place. But what do we find? David actually doing it. Um, and it said, uh, so David gathered all the people, verse 29, 
together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. And so what we find is the exact opposite of what we find at the beginning of the story. At the beginning of the story, David says, I'm going to leave the hard work for everybody else. I'm going to stay at home. And instead of being lazy, he returned to work. He did what he was called to do. And he went out and he took the this, this city and he did what God was called, what had, God had called him to do. And God blessed him for it. Look what happens in verse 30 and 31. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and, and, and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. You know, there was nothing wrong with returning to Jerusalem, but not until the job was done, right? And now David goes out and he continues and he does what he's called to do. And God blesses him for it. He gives him the spoils. And in fact, I would say that's the exact opposite of being covetous. Being covetous is when, when, when you're not able to enjoy what God has given you because you're so focused on what other people have given you. Here, God gives him all of this stuff and he gets to enjoy the spoils of, of war. And he gets to enjoy the spoils of all of the things that God had given to him. What we find in the end of David's life, and I wish we had time to walk through the rest of it, we see what David did from that point on. He's still not a man without errors, but he was a man who did great things. We look at this and we say, what made the difference? And it was that confrontation and the consequences that God brought into his life where he learned to do the exact opposite of what he was doing in the, that weak moment of his life. The question really, the, the most important question for us today is, are you going to let God renovate you in the same way that he renovated David? And let Nathan confront you on some things today and confront you and, and, and change you. And so I've, I've got four questions for introspection that, that, that fall in line with each of these before and afters. The first question I want to ask you today as we think about application is, are you coasting your way through the Christian life? Have you come to a point in your Christian life where you're living off of past successes? Like, oh, God used to do this. I did this for God one day, and I did all this. Are you coasting through life, living off these past successes, feeling like, okay, now I can kind of take it easy? Because the application would be, if that's, if that's the case right now, you need to know there's a war going on. Right? I mean, look at the culture around us. There, I'm telling you right now, there's a war going on. What are you doing in Jerusalem? Sleeping into the evening, walking around on the roof. So, application, enlist right now. Find your role in the Great Commission and get to work. Say, oh, but I'm, you know, I'm 55 years old. I don't care. I saw 55-year-old people running the race with us yesterday. <laughs> right? Spiritually, we should be enlisting right now. Find your role in the Great Commission. Maybe, there, maybe it's a role right here in the church. And say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to serve and working with kids, or I'm going to sign up to work in VBS, or I'm going to uh, do whatever it might be. Maybe it's a ministry to people outside of the church, uh, uh, a ministry where we say, I'm going to take on this ministry, and I'm going to go after these people, and I'm going to get the gospel to these people. Whatever it might be, find your role in the Great Commission and enlist and get to it. Amen? Don't coast through life. Don't, don't do that. And Secondly, do you covet what other people have? Are you discontent with what God has allotted for you to the point that you are actually looking and wishing that you had what other people had? 
Are you discontent with that? I'd say, if so, then enjoy the blessings that God has given you. Find a way just to, to thank the Lord for what he's given you. You know the, the, the hymn, Count Your Many Blessings? That's actually a command in Scripture. We're to count our blessings. Why? Because we forget all the great things that God has given us. That's the nature of sin. He, Satan wants you to be discontent with what God has given you and only focus on the one thing that will actually not please you anyway. That's, isn't that the Garden of Eden in, in a nutshell? I mean, God gave him the entire garden, but one tree. Satan says, you'll never be happy until you eat from that tree. Isn't that the story of David? I mean, he, he, could have, he, he was the king. He could have anything he wants. But he wants that one woman that belongs to another man. Do you covet what other people have? If so, learn to enjoy what God has given you. And be thankful for what God has given you. Count the blessings for what God has given to you. Number three, say, do you make a habit of hiding your sins? You know, Francis Chan was, was he's a very open man. And, and I uh, was reading where he was, he was saying, you know, there was a point in my life where it just hit me. If everybody knew of the things that I keep secret no one would think of me as a spiritual person. So I, was always, I was constantly worried. If someone wanted to borrow my laptop, you know, then I was afraid, well, are they going to see what I looked at? If someone could, would, would, would catch me doing this or catch me doing that, are they going to know? And he said, that is no way to live your life, and I agree wholeheartedly. There's no way to live your life of saying, what if people find out the secret, the secret me? So I would say the, 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 the secret to dealing with sin is not to conceal it, it's to confess it. I would say confess them and find someone that you can confess to that would, could hold you accountable. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. We need to be, I call it getting into the canoe with each other. I, I, what I mean by that is that if, you're in a, in a, if you see two people in a canoe, one person can go through the motions, but they're not really pulling water. And from the side, uh, you know, you, you're, you're living, uh, if you live on the side and you see that, you don't know who's paddling and who's not. But if you're in the canoe with somebody and someone's not pulling water, you know it. Right? You know, oh, you're just putting your paddle in the water. You're, you're just going with, you're not, you're not pulling water. And we spiritually need to get in the canoe with each other. To where, oh, you're, you're, not, you're not pulling your water right now. You're, you're not feeling spiritually strong. Something's going on. You're, you're dealing with a sin. I'm right here to help you out. Even if it means a strong confrontation done in love. So find, find build relationships with people. Invite that kind of influence. In, into your own life. And number four, I'd say this. Do you understand the value of human life? We, as a culture, have fallen into the same concept that David had fell forth with this little blip of his, of his life, but this idea as a culture that, that a life can lose its value if it becomes an inconvenience to me. I'll tell you, we can't go there as Christians. We ought to fight that mentality with everything we have. Amen? The value of human life. That David came to that point where he was willing to let someone die because it would make life easier for him. And I would just say this. Let God be God when it comes to life and death. Let God be God when it comes to life and death. That means when someone passes away and we think, oh, this, is, this from my perspective, doesn't seem like good timing. You know what? Let God be God. That means when, when someone has a life and we say, oh, this is an inconvenient time to have this person start their life, 
let God be God. He allowed that baby to be, to be conceived, giving that baby the best chance that it can have. Amen? I'm not trying to get political here. I'm not talk, I don't care what party you are, but I'll tell you what, I, I say uh, without shame, I'm pro-life because God is pro-life. And the Bible says life and death is His. It belongs to Him. And I don't care what party you're in, I don't, I don't care, but I do care that you value life the way God says we should value life. I'd say value life. Leave life and death into the hands of God. And that includes our own. To come to that point and say, Lord, not only am I going to surrender my life to you, I surrender my death to you. That means if you want to take me today, that's okay. If you want to take me when I'm 100 years old, that's okay too. But I am going to finish that course until I'm done. I will not retire early. I am going to fight the fight and I'm going to finish the course. And David needed that lesson at this point in his life so that he could finish strong. Amen? In just a moment, I'm going to ask for a response. And I'm just going to, we're going to sing, uh, sing a song. But I'm going to ask you, if the Lord's working in your heart in any of those ways, perhaps you're just saying, maybe the Lord's just saying, stop coasting through life. Take a job and go for it. And find your role in the Great Commission and, and do it then just come and commit that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I don't know what it is yet, but whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it. Or maybe you realize that you haven't been content with what you have and you've been coveting things that belong to other people. And Come forward and surrender that to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm going to count my blessings. Be thankful for what you've given me. And maybe you, you have a habit of hiding your sins and, and you just come forward and do the exact same thing that David did. Say, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Holy God. And come and confess those sins before the Lord. And so in any of those ways, any way that God is working in your heart, I'm going to invite you to respond as, as soon as we uh, sing, sing the hymn. I'm going to pray as we, as we do that to prepare our hearts for the invitation. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for taking broken people like David, giving them a second chance, loving him enough to, to send someone to confront him, working in his life, even the consequences, Lord. We thank you for those consequences when they bring us back to where we need to be. So, Lord, that's my prayer right now, that you would do business in our hearts. I pray that as we sing, come just as you are, I pray that, that we would come just as we are, with our sins, with our fears, with our failures. We lay them at your feet. And I pray this in Jesus' name.